Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Hey, I want to uh, continue our series today on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to kind of be here for quite a few uh, weeks going forward until we've kind of preached through all of this incredible sermon that Jesus first spoke to us. And, and it echoes through the generations to us here and now. And I'm grateful last week Pastor David gave a broad overview of all eight of the Beatitudes. But today... I'm going to dive a little bit deeper on the first four. Next week, I'll go through the following four. And I want to hear God's word and maybe bring some insight, some revelation as we're able to go into these proclamations that Jesus began the greatest sermon ever preached. He began it with these proclamations. So today, my sermon title is Paradox Paradigm. The Paradox Paradigm. We're going to go through... These first four Beatitudes, they begin in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is proclaiming these blessings over those who seek to live like him. He's proclaiming these blessings over his flock, over his children, over those that choose to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming these blessings over you. He's proclaiming them over your life, your mind, your family, your future. He's proclaiming blessed. My goal today is that is that we would move as a church, that I would move you as people to operate from the eternal perspective that Jesus is providing through the Beatitudes, that, that you would operate from the eternal perspective in all that you do. Blessed, says Jesus. He begins the greatest sermon ever preached by any man with this word, blessed. What a beginning to a sermon. I've heard thousands of sermons in my life. There's funny beginnings, there's interesting beginnings, there's dramatic beginnings, but there has been no sermon that begins with such force, no sermon that begins with such authority, no sermon that begins with such power as this sermon from the mouth of God in the first word he chooses to proclaim in his intro over humanity is the word blessed. It's more than just a good vibe. It's more than just a hashtag. It's more than just a, a way of being. It is a proclamation from the king over his people, blessed. He said it over his disciples. He said it over the crowd. But he says it throughout time and space over the church, over you. Jesus says, blessed. What's amazing is that it strikes against the very last word found in the Old Testament. The very last word that finishes out the era of the law, that finishes out the, the, the books of the Bible before Jesus arrived. The last word found in the book of Malachi is the word curse. And, and, and it's speaking about the coming of John the Baptist, about the coming of the Messiah, saying that John the Baptist is going to preach. And if people do not change, do not turn towards the Messiah they and their land will come under a curse. So think about it. 
the very last word of the Old Testament is curse. That's what's hanging over people. For hundreds of years, the Bible says they were people dwelling in deep darkness. Do you feel like you're dwelling in the land of darkness? Is there darkness in your thoughts, darkness over your emotions? Maybe even you feel like there's a darkness over your home. You wouldn't be the first person to have to live in the land of darkness. All those that came before Jesus, they lived underneath that. Those that were in between the time of the prophets and the 400 years of silence, they were living under that hanging curse. Ever since the garden when Adam and Eve messed up, they were living in the curse of sin without even the hope of grace. There was just law, sin, curse. People not measuring up, living in darkness. And no wonder the very last word of the Old Testament is curse. Because that is what people were operating under. It seemed that their nation, seemed that their lives were living under a curse. And, and don't forget, these people Jesus was speaking to were under active oppression. They were conquered all throughout the ages by many different tribes, many different empires. But the people he's speaking to now... They're under oppression by the Roman Empire. They are living under abject tyranny. They are struggling under not just a foreign power that hates them. They're struggling under religious leaders who are supposed to lead them and yet are using those people to their own advantage. Cursed. Cursed is an accurate way to describe the state of being of these people. Their land seemed cursed, their lives seemed cursed, their homes seemed cursed. Because in the end, the law, in the end, all the works of man, it cannot bring hope. It cannot bring blessing. But here comes Jesus. And in the opening statement of the greatest sermon to be delivered by the authority, greater than the Pharisees, Greater than the religious leaders, greater than Rome and the government. Here comes the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And what does he have to say over them? What does he have to say over you? He declares blessed. And you might say, well, Jesus, do you not see what's going on here? Do you not see those Roman soldiers? Do you not see the Pharisees? Do you not see our poverty? As if Jesus didn't know the crowd that he was speaking to. Jesus, do you not see that people are marginalized? Do you not see that there's oppression? Do you not get it? How could you say blessed when there's still problems? How could you say blessed when there's still troubles and hurt and pain? And yet, Jesus comes with a greater word than the current reality. In other words, we don't find our faith from what's around us or what's within us. We don't find our faith from the circumstances that are coming against us or facing us. We find our faith in the words of Jesus, and he comes and he speaks a better word than cursed. So you might be saying, well, I feel like I'm cursed. I feel like everything I do is wrong. I feel like I'm, I'm living under this oppression. I'm here to tell you there is a greater word than your past or current reality. And Jesus is proclaiming it over you right now in the name of Jesus, blessed. Blessed, he proclaims over his people. Why? Why would he start the sermon with this word? Why would he begin with this proclamation? It's because, see, Jesus came. His mission on planet Earth was to establish a new paradigm. 
He came with a mission to establish a new way of being, a new way of living, a new way of loving. He came to reconnect God and man. He came to overcome the curse of sin. And and, and in so doing, he brings this revelation with him of a new paradigm. He calls this paradigm the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus isn't looking at the current realities. He's not looking at the current problems, situations, or issues to determine what his theology is. Jesus is coming from heaven. He was just there. And he's coming as conquering king, and he's saying, I'm here to declare a new age. I'm here to declare a new government. I'm here to declare a new way to live, and it's going to start with blessings, because that's also where it's going to end. I'm here to bring a new covenant, the kingdom of heaven. See, what you have to understand is what Jesus was proclaiming was a perspective that was heaven downward, not earth upward. So much of humanity and faith at that time and even today was all about how can we get to God? The Tower of Babel was an attempt of people to build towards God. They tried with good works, the way to live, get to God through the law. And yet all of humanity's attempts, all of our attempts to get to God have fallen short. Jesus comes and he says, no, no, that's not how it works. It doesn't start on earth and come to heaven. The new paradigm is heaven downward. For God so loved that he came from heaven downward. In other words, he's saying, I want you to live with an eternal perspective. This is just a, a midpoint on the, on the, to, to the ultimate destination. In other words, I'm not making my, dis, my decision on, on where I'm going or how I'm walking for where I find myself right now. No, I, I go to the destination. I mark that spot. Then from there, I choose the way I walk. I choose the pace I, I, I walk in. I choose the, how I'm going to overcome my obstacles because I'm living from the kingdom of heaven downward. Does this make sense? This is what Jesus came to proclaim. You're blessed not because of the current realities. You're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. What you have to understand is the entire Sermon on the Mount was God trying to bring a new perspective to his people which is an eternal perspective. Over and over on the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps referencing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And every single time he mentions God, he says, God, your father, who's in heaven? Why does he keep doing that? He keeps trying to grab our mind, our heart and emotions and bring it up into eternity. He says, live from this place. Our hope, our faith is anchored beyond the veil. In other words, we live from heaven downward. There's this great um, scene in The Passion of the Christ where in the midst of the crucifixion, the camera pans up, and it's looking down upon Jesus on the cross, and it's, and it's right at the moment of his death, and it's like a, a teardrop falls, as if it's falling from the eyes of God. And as the rain begins to come down, it comes down from a teardrop from above. And I always love that shot because it shows what the crucifixion would look like from heaven's perspective. What the Sermon on the Mount is, is an invitation for you to lift your eyes up. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation for you to see things differently. For you to go with God into the realm beyond and live by faith from the fact that there is a new paradigm. There is a new way. 
there's a great God. So that's why when Jesus comes, he can't start the sermon any old way. He has to start it with a proclamation from heaven, blessed. I mean, imagine. Imagine right now a rocket ship re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Imagine lightning crashing from the sky to Earth. And that is what's happening with this word and with this sermon. God, with this one moment, this one word, has proclaimed B.C. and A.D., old and new. He has, he, has, he has brought heaven and earth together. together. And he, who is Jesus, the, great, the true and greater Moses, is coming from heaven down to earth. As Moses came from Mount Sinai down to earth, Moses brought the law, but he couldn't bring life. Jesus brings the eight Beatitudes, and he brings a new word, blessed. You know what's so interesting, too, about the number eight? In the Bible, it represents new beginnings. Jesus is here to say, the old is gone. Behold, I make all things new. That's the promise of Jesus in the book of Revelations. That's the declaration of a conquering king. That is the paradigm Jesus comes to set for his people. We no longer live under cursed. We now, because of Jesus, because of the Sermon on the Mount, because of his words, we live under blessed. This is a paradox. See, God's new paradigm is filled with paradox. These eight statements of the Beatitudes, as powerful as they are, they're a little bit difficult to figure out because they're not natural. They're not usual. They're a bit of a paradox. What a paradox is is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, yet perhaps true. And today we're going to investigate these eight statements that Jesus makes and see, is there a deeper truth here? And see, what you have to understand as we go through these paradoxical proclamations of the Beatitudes is you have to understand Jesus isn't speaking from earth to heaven. He's speaking from heaven to earth. In other words, we need to investigate Jesus' words with our spirit with our spiritual eyes open, with our spiritual heart open, God will speak to you. But he's going to speak over and above and through the things of earth. He's speaking from heaven. So his revelations, his truth, is going to be a little bit deeper. It might seem like a paradox, but I believe that there's a deep truth hidden in every one of these beatitudes that God wants to speak to us, awakening church, today. The first beatitude begins like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The first proclamation is for the spiritually poor. And what's his promise? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the first paradox? The first paradox is simply this. How can the poor possess a kingdom? How can the poor own, have authority, have ownership, be a part of a kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. If they had a kingdom, they wouldn't be poor. That's the paradox. But see, what you have to understand, what Jesus is really saying, is the one who isn't satisfied in their spirit, but seek God, will be rewarded with God and all he's got. What Jesus is saying is the one who, who's still searching, the one who doesn't have enough, 
The one that recognizes their own need for God. That's what spiritual poverty is. The one that's filled with spiritual pride, they can't find God. They're too full of themselves. The one that feels like, I got this, I'm good. I got my life set up. I got the things that I need. Got my little idols. I'm good. They won't see God. They won't find God. And God almost honors their belief. You've got enough? Then you don't need my kingdom. Jesus says, the one I'm going to give my kingdom to, those are the ones that say, God, I got nothing. I want to have faith, but I know I don't even have enough faith. Like the centurion says, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, the poor in spirit are the ones that God says, I can work with them. In fact, they have enough room to receive what I have for them. What I love about God's eternal kingdom is it's, it's kind of an anti-kingdom. It's, it's equal and opposite. It's upside down. It's almost the reverse of what we see on earth. In an earthly kingdom, who would be a part of it? In an earthly kingdom, who would have access to the throne room? Who would be influential in positions of leadership? Well, in an earthly kingdom, it would, it would be those that are wealthy. It would be those that are nobility that have lineage, that come from the right homes, that speak the right words, that have the right talents, that have the right amount of money. It would be those that are influential. Those are the ones that would, that would possess the kingdom. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'm here to give the kingdom not to people that already have enough, not to those that come from the right lineage. I think he illustrates this by on the night when he comes to earth, he comes to the shepherds first. You might say, well, well, what status did they have? None. Well, well then why did he come to them? He, he came to them not because they did something, not because of who they were, not because of their good works. He, he came to them to say, I'm here to turn things upside down. I'm going to the bottom rung of society to show that I'm going to turn this thing upside down. Through the Old Testament, person after person, from Gideon to David, God always showed that his kingdom went after the lesser. His kingdom went to those who were poor in spirit. Not influential. Not talented. But those that desired God. That wanted God. Wanted to be used by God. God says, I can work with that. In fact, not only will I work with that, and work through that, I've got a reward for those that approach me like that. So if you feel like you still have much to learn, if you feel like you don't have much to give, a few fish and a few loaves, if you feel like you're not enough, I would propose that you are in the perfect place to be used by the kingdom of God. You might say, I feel like I've got no place here on earth. Good. Perfect. Now you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things will be added unto you. Everything else that you need, let God add it, but God first. Blessed are those that put God first. Blessed are those that recognize their need for God. What will they get? They'll get the kingdom of heaven. They'll get the attention of God. They'll get the authority of God. It's a paradox, but God goes to the poor because they have room 
to receive him. The second beatitude is those are for those who are mourning. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. See, here's the paradox. How can comfort and grief coexist? How can blessing and being brokenhearted coexist? Blessed are those who mourn. Can you imagine hearing this for the very first time? I know we think like, oh, of course, obviously, because Jesus said it. But hold on. How is this possible? How can those that are hurting, how can those that are going through difficult situations, how can they be the ones that are blessed? We've even complicated this because out of our poor theology, we have equated difficulty as the removal of God's blessings. Our poor theology has kind of said if you're blessed, it's going to be easy. If you're blessed, everything's going to line up. If you're blessed, there's going to be no hurt, no pain, no things to walk through. Blessings and prosperity, that's how you know you're under God's hand. But here, here Jesus seems to be saying the opposite of that. He's saying if you're mourning, if you're in need of comfort, if you're broken and in pain, you're blessed. Or I have blessings for you. Or my hand of covering will be on you. How's this possible? How's this possible? I believe simply this. I propose to you today that the blessing is God's presence that covers you in the moment of your pain. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The blessing is God's hand of covering that comes over your home, over your mind, over that hospital room, in the very moment of your pain. God's hand is not, it's not removed from you in your pain. I'd argue that it comes even closer to you when you are in your most time of most need, when you are at your end, when, when you are grieving, that's when God's hand, power, blessing comes close to you. His presence in the moment of pain. Psalm 34 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. He's not far. He's not saying deal with it. You got yourself into this situation. He's not angry. He's not removed from you. I'd argue that the more broken you become, the closer, the more real God's overwhelming presence of love comes to you. I've never felt the presence of God like I've felt him in some hospital rooms. I've never seen the comforting of God like I've seen in moments where there should be no comfort from anyone at all. See, Jesus is saying that heaven operates differently than earth. If we were just living in an earthly way or earth on uh, 
in a secular world, sure, comfort and grief couldn't coexist. But if heaven gets involved, things become different. Think of a parent that stays with their sick child all night long. The worse the child gets, the closer the parent comes. The more helpful the parent is. The parent stays with them, sleeps on the floor in their room, stays in that hospital room with them. See, you, the parent always loved the child, but it wasn't until there was difficulty. It wasn't until there was pain did the depth of the parent's love have an opportunity to be revealed. When you go through difficult moments, I pray that the hand of God's blessing comes over your life, over your spouse, over that circumstance, and overrides, overrides the negative report, overrides the circumstances that is leading to the mourning. It's not that you don't mourn, but there is a hand that's more powerful. There are words that are more potent. There is a presence that is still moving in the midst of the sadness. It is the hand of the Almighty. And through the difficult situations, you're able to see the depth of God's love for you like you've never seen it before. Why? Because he's close to the brokenhearted. His hand of blessing is on you. His promise is this. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. That's God's promise to you. David says in the Psalm, the famous Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You comfort me. You protect me. You walk with me. That's how I'm blessed. Because I have the Almighty by my side, despite anything I go through on this earth. See, the key word in this psalm is through. Even though I walk through the valley. That's a key word in this psalm. Listen, there are some situations that you're going to have to walk through. Some difficulties, some problems. And it's going to be different for everyone, but make no mistake, everyone is going to have to walk through their own valley of the shadow of death. But I want you to know three things, three things that I get from this psalm. Three things. You have to walk through it, number one, through it, not around it. You're going to have to go through it. Don't try and avoid it, escape it, use substances or disappear. In the end, you will have to walk through that valley, commit to it, walk through it. Number one, through, not around. Second thing I see is that you will walk through it, but number two, not alone. Even though I walk through the valley, not around the valley, but I don't walk through the valley alone, alone for you are with me. And the third thing I see the psalmist say is that it will not be forever. I will get through this. There will be another side. There will be another mountaintop. There will be a time where the shadow recedes. There will be a time where the sun breaks through. So how could I say that you're blessed? How could Jesus promise that you'd be blessed because he knows this truth. Yes, you will have to walk through, but you will get through. And I will be with you. And you will find comfort. You will find strength. You will mature. You will grow. And on the other side, you will receive comforting even in the midst 
of your morning. That's a good God. That's a good God. I, I, I would, I'd propose to you that you have lived this psalm this year. I'd propose to you that you've lived even through this paradox, through this beatitude this year. That you have gone through things that have caused mourning, but yet you've been comforted. Many of you, many of us, we've, we've seen loss of life. Even some that were close to us this year. Some of you have had job loss. Financial security loss. Some of you have lost relationships with your friends, even with your children. Reasons to mourn. Many of us have lost a sense of normalcy. One thing that I see parents mourning is seemingly like a sense of, of a loss of future for their children. That they won't be able to live in the way we kind of grew up. Reasons to mourn. But could I, could I propose that there's another side to this? That even in the midst of the mourning, God's hand of blessing and comfort has been at active work in your life, in our church, in this community, that in the midst of all of this, there's been joy unexplainable. That there's been friendships that have been forged in faith. That there has been faith, deep faith, found that we didn't know that we had. That there's been maturity made, even in the midst of all, there's been cause for celebration. Say, how is that possible? Because there's more going on than what's just going on. There's more happening than what's happening on the earth. If you have an eternal perspective, you will find God's hand moving blessings and comfort even in the midst of mourning. How can these realities coexist? Because Jesus Christ is our comforter. And when you meet Jesus, you meet Christ the comforter. I pray that God's hand of blessing does not leave you, that it is on you, that no matter what you go through, he walks through it with you, and that this beatitude is not just known by you. I pray it's lived by you. It's understood by you, and it's exemplified by you that you get a revelation of God's goodness, closeness, and love for you in all that you go through. The third beatitude that Jesus proclaims over his people is for the meek. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The paradox here is how can the mild become mighty? Blessed are the meek. Meek isn't a word that we use as a virtue very much in our language. Meek is not, it's not something that we put up on the board and we aspire to or have our children aspire to. Meek? Meek seems like someone that gets pushed around, concedes. And yet, yet God says they're blessed. And not only, not only are they blessed, they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to rule. They're going to reign. They're going to be in a position of power and authority. How's that possible? The people without ambition? The people that seem to be okay with who they were? They're going to be the ones that are going to receive, are going to gain? That seems opposite how the world works. I'll give you a hint 
on why this, why this beatitude is true. It's, it's not about who they are. It's about who their father is. The meek inherit the earth. See, what you have to understand is meekness is not weakness. That's something we've mixed up in our culture and time. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, this word meek, if you study it out, it's got a lot of depth to it. This word meek means someone with, with lack of self-pride. Or if you go even deeper, someone with lack of, of self-concern, like, a, like a, a lack of self-concern. They, they live more concerned about others than themselves. Moses, the Bible says, is the meekest man who's ever lived. A great leader, mighty and strong, and yet more concerned about those around him than he was concerned about himself. Meekness is not weakness. A better definition would be, would be disciplined, quiet strength. Disciplined, quiet strength. So I guess you could say Jesus is our model of meekness. He had the ability and the authority to do whatever he wanted to do, the power, the strength, in a moment's notice. And yet, he modeled meekness when he allowed the cross to be put on his back. He, he through meekness, allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to go through these torturous, barbaric acts. And while he's on the cross, I mean, the most amazing thing that he could ever say, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. See, that is the personification of meekness. He's got all the power, he's got all the ability, but he has a disciplined, quiet strength and a concern for them even more than himself in that moment where anyone would be more self-concerned. And, and when you look at Jesus in that, in that, that moment as a model, you say, could, could I possibly ever move that way in my life? Father, forgive them. We want justice. And, and there is righteousness and justice. But a lot of times we use the word justice when we mean vengeance. We want people to come up to our standard. We want it to be right and exacting. We're the lawyers and the judge. We're the prosecution and the jury. And if we had the power in that moment, could we possibly say, God, forgive them? Because the deep truth is they don't know what they're doing. People that are active in evil in this world, people that have got stuff upside down, they're wrong, but Jesus chooses not to hate, chooses not to be vile. He says, God, forgive them. And, and, and he is our model. What Jesus is, is saying through the cross is live like this. This is what the meek look like. They're strong. They're people of character, but they, they forgive quickly. They, they think of others. They're, they're more self-concerned. When I'm, when I'm challenged like that by the cross, I realize I've got a long way to go before I can be like Jesus. Jesus on the cross is inviting you and I to live like this. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that can shout forgiveness over those that are doing injustice to them. And look at what he says. For those will inherit the earth. Here's the concept. The concept is inheritance. You know, inheritance is for the children. 
You don't inherit things out of your own doings, your own actions, your own strength. You don't inherit things by angling or moving. You inherit things just by existing. Inheritance is for the kids. You're born into inheritance. What you receive, you receive from the life that was lived before you. Their actions is what you're receiving from. So what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's not just modeling meekness. He is inviting his children, you and I, into the inheritance of the cross. He is saying, follow me, live like me, deny yourself, become my children, and I will give you what I'm gaining in this moment. The meek shall inherit the earth. Why? Because of something they did? No, because of everything Jesus did. I want to live like him and receive from him. This is what Paul's speaking about in Ephesians. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is not because of you. Not because of your goodness, not because of your prayer life, not because of how good or bad you've been. He said, look, grace was was acquired by the action of Jesus on the cross. And you can come to him through faith. And he, he keeps saying, by the way, this is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works. I love that he keeps doubling down on it so that no one can boast. I'll tell you. This year has opened my eyes to God's goodness because of who he is. Not because of who we are or what we do or don't do, could do or try not to do. It is all because of the action of God. And so God says, will you just... We just have humility. We just have meekness. We just be kind. Will you come in alignment with my character and I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll give you everything that you are going to need as you need it. By the way, not because of you, but fully because of me. God gives the earth to those who will value people over power. He gifts the earth to those who will value spirit over secular. Spirit over self. He He gives the earth as an inheritance to those that choose to deny themselves, deny the the old life, take up their cross and follow him. He says, I do have a reward for you, but you're going to have to become my child. See, See, this beatitude is a problem for the flex generation. This beatitude is a problem for the young people that, that always desire for more. This generation where moderation is mocked, where moderation is laughed at, the flex generation where discontent drives our actions, where enough is not enough. This beatitude comes against our inner desire to gain for ourselves. This beatitude comes against our personal ambition. And this generation that thrives on more More homes, another promotion, a better job, a better workplace, another relationship, a better relationship, two relationships. A generation that that derives its worth from the numbers on the screen in their account. And, And wants to let everyone else know through how they speak, how they dress, just how valuable they are, how much they got. Jesus says, in the end, it's not you. It's not you that are that are gonna get the earth. It's those that are more more concerned about others than self. 
that love the Spirit over the secular. See, this is who Jesus is speaking to in the book of John when, when he, he makes this proclamation about those who would inherit the earth. He says, for, whoe- for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then end up forfeiting his own soul? What Jesus is saying is the path to eternal prosperity is through the imitation of Christ. Not through the path of man, the ambitions, the fight, the desire, the accumulation of stuff. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you're going to end up losing it. But if you choose to lay down your life in meekness, in kindness, in gratitude, you will end up not only finding your life, not only saving it, but you'll end up gaining the whole world. For those that have the world now, we'll lose it. Napoleon had the world and he lost it. Alexander the Great wept for there were no more realms to conquer. He had the world and he lost it. Caesar had the world taken to him from him by his best friend. Jesus is saying these are those that gained the whole world, yet they lost what mattered. But Jesus says, be my son, be my daughter. Follow the path of imitating me, and I who gained the whole world will give it to you. The last beatitude is for the hungry. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's amazing. He's speaking to the inner state that all people desire. Satisfaction. The paradox here is, how can the hungry be full? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they're going to be satisfied, they're going to be full. How can the hungry also be full? Here's the point. The more your soul desires the Spirit, the more it's filled. The more your soul desires the Spirit of God, the more it's filled. Satisfied, but still desiring more. It's a beautiful mystery. You're satisfied, but still desiring more. I mean, think about the story when Elijah told the widow to get as many vessels as possible. And every time they poured out, from, they poured out the oil, the oil kept flowing until all the vessels were, were full. Even, it's like such a beautiful picture of, of how God's presence works. As long as there's empty vessels, the oil The oil never runs out. It's it's like in worship. When you are worshiping God, you're satisfied, but you desire more. It's this mystery of eternity. But, But see, sin doesn't work that way. Self does not work that way. Sin, sin never satisfies. Never satisfies. Like, don't you think it's ironic that criminals always have to steal? Not only do they steal, they always have to steal. Rarely has anyone stolen their way into satisfaction. For they finally got enough and they say, all right, I'm done with this life. I'm ready to live a godly life. Rarely do you steal your way into satisfaction because it's sinful. Sin is always cyclical and it's always downward. You know, I think even about... You know, the greatest criminals who have ever lived, the Capones, Pablo Escobar, 
It's amazing if you read about their downfall, if you read about, read about the tragic endings of their lives. It's all the same. It ends horribly. It ends sad. They end alone every time. And what's interesting to me is many of the time, those that stole the most end up dirt poor. And it's almost as if this principle is coming into effect where, where, where God's saying, if your desire is always to get more and more on earth, if you're always hungry and thirsty for wealth, in the end, you're not going to be satisfied. Hungry and thirsty for power, there will never be enough. Hungry and thirsty for gratification, pleasure in your own body, it will never be enough. You'll never be satisfied because sin, sin, selfishness, it always creates that downward spiral. It never lifts you up. Never, never brings you towards the good things in life. It never brings you towards contentment. It always moves you away, further away from who you are, further away who, from who God wants you to be. But, but the good news is Jesus, when he comes, he not only satisfies, he changes your soul's very desires. He changes how you work on the inside. Like, you know how when you're older, when you get older, from when you were a kid, your, your tastes begin to change? Your taste for f- certain food or taste in music, taste in movies? Of course, it's normal. If, 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 if there was an older person who, who still ate the same amount of candy, was still into the same music and the same movies, you'd be like, that person's stuck in the old. When you get older, you begin to mature. Listen, when Jesus shows up, he begins to say, okay, that was the old you, but your desires are going to begin to change now. You're not going to be hungry and thirsty for these things that are destructive to who you are. You're going to begin to crave righteousness. You're going to begin to crave the sound of God, the things of God. And it's a process. It's a process. It's not perfect because you're not perfect. But it's a path that you begin to walk in. And after a year, two years, ten years with God, you begin to find that your words change, that your outlook changes, that the way your mind it, it, it works, it begins to change. And, and, now, and now there's hope where there used to be hopelessness. There's healing where there used to only be pain. There's forgiveness where there only used to be bitterness. What happened? Your hunger changed. Your thirst changed. You began to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the things of God. And that's when satisfaction began to come in. Because God says, that I can fulfill. Sin only drains, sucks the life right out of you. But righteousness, the presence of God, it fills you more and more and more. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He covers you. He surrounds you. He becomes your foundation. These beatitudes, they are Jesus proclaiming blessings over those who want to live like him, love like him, follow him. These are the blessings and the promises that Jesus is proclaiming over you. His promised blessings through these first four Beatitudes, he promises heaven and comfort. And he promises earth and satisfaction. Incredible.
the things that our soul yearns for. He says, I'm going I'm to give you heaven, and in heaven you're going to find comfort. And I'm going to give you earth. And on earth you're going to find satisfaction, but you have to choose. Will you follow the kingdom of self? Will you live under the curse of sin? Or will you follow the kingdom of God? And will you live under the proclamation of blessing? I'm grateful that we serve a king that left his throne to come establish his kingdom on earth. In our hearts, in our churches, we are being established, brought into the kingdom of God. Today, we choose. We choose. We realign. Not with the kingdom of self, sin, or secular. We come into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of Jesus, and all of his promises. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.